You're listening to Women Making Waves. So, Linda, it's really interesting now. You've had another most influential woman on Women Making Waves. I know. We really are finding them in droves, aren't we? Yeah. Priyanka Joshi, it was absolutely lovely. I found her because she was listed in the Vogue's Top 25 Most Influential Women I love in the UK. those lists. I absolutely I love searching those lists. I know. They are absolutely great. And she does tell quite a funny story about the fact that she went to a photo shoot and she was there with Dua Lipa, <laughs> who, to those who don't know, is quite a well-known pop star didn't have a clue who she was and she was saying that her little sister was rolling her eyes and going oh for goodness sake how could you not know who that was and she also met some amazing other ladies too so she's had quite an experience already other people on on the list were jk rowling for example Mm. and she was saying you know i grew up reading her books so she was really taken by this as well. And she's absolutely lovely. So she tells the story of her life from when she was a young child in India. So we'll be now listening to Dr Priyanka Joshi talking to Linda Ness here at Women Making Waves. A young girl would pick up a magazine and look at it and be like, OK, I could become an actor or a singer, but I could also become a scientist. We are really fortunate on Women Making Waves to have access to women who are at the top of their field. During her PhD, Dr Priyanka Joshi developed a small molecule library to target irregular proteins present in diseases such as Alzheimer's. Amongst other accolades, she's on the Vogue 25 list of the most influential women in the UK, alongside women such as Amal Clooney, JK Rowling and Meghan Markle, and has been listed in the Forbes 30 Under 30 class of 2018. Tell me, Priyanka, how did you become a biochemist? Were you particularly interested in science as a child? Oh, yes. I was born in India, in the capital, New Delhi. And I spent a lot of time with my grandparents, especially during the summer vacation. My maternal grandfather, he was not a scientist, but he had these little experiments in the backyard. So I remember him sort of encouraging, you know, us, like me and my cousins, and take us to this little workshop where he had a solar exhaust and, you know, a water turbine. And everything was more like an innovation. So I think that sort of sowed the seed of, you know, making new things and and then seeing how they work. So that was the starting point. But there's another thing that happened. So in India, parents pressurize a lot on education (laughs) and you know you have to either become a doctor or an engineer so when I was a kid like my father wanted to be a doctor he could not become one and everyone in the family thought that you know I'm going to become a doctor and I also thought I should become a doctor and then I felt sick an awful lot of times so I was at the hospital with my parents every month I had dengue I had malaria I had you know all sorts of these diseases when I was a kid although I was brought up very well so my time at the hospital like every time I went there I always wondered like you know why do people get sick And I thought doctors really solve this problem. They can help people, they can alleviate pain, suffering, and and I just wanted to do that. But then as I grew up, I realized in my high school that a doctor definitely knows a lot about disease, but then a doctor is the one who gives you prescriptions, diagnoses the disease, but does not really understand the disease to a more molecular level. So there has to be someone else who looks at it. So I would say that one of my friends, her dad was a plant scientist, and he just encouraged me to to study fundamental sciences. So I'm very glad that I got to meet him and then spoke to a lot of other people. And then I pursued uh, basic sciences, and I was like, okay, I can still, you know, help people, but I have 
to sort of go back and do research. So I think that's when it started. I remember when I was in India many mm-hmm. years ago, seeing little children going to school along the street and they were all beautifully dressed, yeah. beautifully kitted oh, out, yeah. beautiful little dresses on the girls, hair all tied back, little school bag, white socks, Absolutely perfect. You always get the impression they're going to be very, very keen to learn. Were you a good pupil at school? Yes, definitely. Yeah. There were a lot of opportunities. So I would say I was blessed to go to a good school. I come from a middle class family, but my parents made sure that, you know, I went to a good school and um, and I was in an environment that encouraged as in there's no limit. Just play, learn and and. and so you enjoyed your childhood? Yeah. Yes. What made you come to the UK? So at some point... During my undergraduation, I decided that if I have to do research, I need to get a PhD. And that's when I started applying for positions. As it happens is if you're in India and if you want to go abroad, you have to write the GRE, which is an easy exam. But then it's more like you have to pay a lot of money to, you know, to to sit with. And at that point, my parents were like, OK, we've helped you with your education, but we won't be able to pay more. So at that point, I, I was sort of in a dilemma whether to, you know, go for a regular job or to do a PhD because nobody in my family comes from an academic background. No one has a PhD. So everyone thought that if you do a PhD, you need to essentially pay for it. And presumably you'd done your master's by this time. So you'd already been studying quite a long time. Yes, exactly. And my parents were like, oh, my God, she has to go to the university. (laughs) And my father often jokes even now, which is that I wouldn't generalize it for India, but in a middle class family, it's not very common to send their girls abroad just on their own. And my parents were already very, very brave to send me to a different city to, you know, study and be on my own while I was in India. But then when I told him that I want to do a PhD, he, of course, must have discussed with his colleagues. And one of his colleagues told him, don't send your daughter abroad alone. It'll be difficult to marry her off. <laughs> <laughs> so, and my father just laughed it off. So I'm very glad he did not take that advice seriously. So you moved to the UK. Do you miss home? Do you go home quite a lot? I do miss home. I do miss my parents. But thanks to technology, there's Skype, yeah. there's WhatsApp. I do feel that I'm so connected. So I miss home, but but I do visit home uh, at least once a year. Mm-hmm. So, so and what about the marrying you off bit then? Have they got over that completely? Your dad wasn't too worried about that, was he? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, um, sometimes we do have this conversation and uh, they do do look around and they're like, you know, we think we might have educated you too much or <laughs> given you too much freedom. <laughs> so what are your plans on getting married? And I'm like, well, it's going to happen when it happens. So, you know, I'm not going to force that on myself. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'd like if you don't force it on me as well. So, yeah. so it's fine. That's good. <laughs> the best way to go, I would say. Mm-hmm. So you came here and you started studying your PhD. So tell us about the work in layman's terms, because, <laughs> you know, not everyone will understand. And I know it's really, really complex what you do. Yes. So when I came to Cambridge, the group that I was working with essentially worked on neurodegeneration and they worked on these proteins that aggregate form clumps and in in diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So I was very excited because I always wanted to study neuroscience, but my background was not in neuroscience. So for me, it was like, okay, here is a position where I have all these prior skills in molecular biology and biochemistry that I have learned during my undergraduation. And I have a question 
that is so interesting and I wanted to know more about neuroscience. So I think this is a perfect place to, you know, sort of learn so much more. So the question I was to look at was whether we can design small molecule drugs for these diseases. And we did not have an answer. So I'm very thankful to my supervisor and, and I quite admire him and look up to him because he never told me what to do. He was like, so what are your ideas and how should we go about this? And I've, I think that really helped in terms of that independence to think how I could solve that problem, given yes. my understanding. You weren't being fed answers. Yes, yeah. exactly. So I think that that was a great start. And because the problem was unsolved, which it's still unsolved. It's how it happens in science is like you build on incremental steps in knowledge and then you get closer and closer to the answer. So yes, that's how I started. It wasn't Alzheimer's in particular. It was it was more the science behind it and the, the small molecules that, yes. you, that drew you to this. Yes, but through my PhD, some interesting things happened. So I was diagnosed of a disease, which is uh, glaucoma, which affects older people. And, and what really happens in glaucoma is that the nerve that connects your eye to the brain degenerates over time. This nerve sort of enables you to see. So if it degenerates, it's irreversible blindness. And uh, I was diagnosed of it when I was 23. And that's very, very, very that's young to be awful. diagnosed. Yes. So, yeah. so when I was uh, at Addenbrooke's, the doctor was like, oh, my God, you're, you're just 23. You shouldn't be having it. So that was a turning point even for my work because uh, I had to undergo some surgeries. And I did speak to the doctors at Addenbrooke's a lot because I would ask them questions. Why, you know, why this, why that? And what are these drugs and, and everything? And to the point that I, I still have that letter in which at the end, the doctor has written, by the way, she's a biologist, you know, because I used to ask a lot of questions to him. <laughs> so, so when I was reading up more about it, I just found like a link between glaucoma and Alzheimer's. I wouldn't say that people who have glaucoma will develop Alzheimer's or vice versa, but there is a link which we're not very certain about. I would call it like the irony, you know, I suffer from an ailment that people get in their old age and I work on it as well. So I think that sort of just kept me going, although it was a little difficult time because I had to take time off work and it was very difficult to concentrate because, oh, I, could I, could not, because yeah. I could not see. So you came up with a small molecule library. Was that something that you developed yourself or working with the team? Yes. As things happen in science is that you don't work alone. You work in a big team. So it's work that everyone does together. So yes, we do have a team of people who I, I'm very fortunate to work with. How did you feel when you were listed on Vogue's 25 Most Influential Women? That is quite an accolade. And the other people on that list, wow. It was a surprise. I had no idea what was coming, to be honest. How did you find out? Uh, so I used to not do experiments during my PhD. I only started doing them afterwards. And I was doing this one experiment, which is called a Western blot. Essentially, it tells you if a protein has been expressed or not, so in a cell. And I was doing this and I get a call from Vogue, British Vogue. And I thought this was this is like a fake call, a spam call. Like, what is it? <laughs> you think it was one of so, your friends joking or yeah. something. <laughs> and, and they said that we'd like to include you on this list of women and would you like to come to London for a photo shoot and initially I was like okay photo shoot like I, I don't know what what this is going to be all about but then after a little thought I was like well I, I, I like doing outreach I love talking to children I love talking to young people you know and motivate them and for science and, and, and I even teach young children back in India over Skype like I used to do that before so I was like, this is also a form of outreach, just a different form of outreach. Mm. And British Vogue is one of these very popular magazines that a lot of girls pick up. 
and what you see is what you aspire to become i feel so when you see all these glamorous women on you know these covers a lot of people might just aspire to become those we don't see as many scientists on and these so i thought oh this might be a nice way to you know do a sort of outreach and reach out to younger girls and and at the same time I also get to experience a photo shoot i mean who oh, wouldn't want to go in with vogue <laughs> exactly so so i said yes and i went for the shoot there were amazing people who i met there some women you i was with Dua Lipa weren't you who's yes. a famous pop star yes I'll confess I did not know of her <laughs> at that time. So I go and I'm like, "Hi, I'm Priyanka and I'm a scientist." And then she introduced herself and that was the only conversation we had. And but I was just looking at her and oh, I was like, "She must be someone popular." So I go back and talk to my sister who's 11 years younger to me and I tell her and she's like, "So in, in India, you would call it your elder sister as Didi." She's like, "Didi, you don't know who Dua Lipa is." <laughs> I was like no she's like you must be really old then <laughs> so um no the, the the photo shoot was quite an experience and until then I still didn't know what was coming so it was only when the list came out in June I think the 1st of June I started getting so many emails and I was like what have I done <laughs> and when I saw the list it's like oh my goodness so I mean I really look up to JK Rowling I grew up reading Harry Potter and just seeing my name there Yeah, and it's a short list 25 of you on that yeah, list yeah. So, amazing really so I felt a lot of pressure as well pressure and then I did not know what to do and at the same time I felt honoured humbled but also responsible but it's great I'm really really glad that they aren't just focusing on actresses and people like that they're actually including scientists yes and I think that is something that really got me to say a yes when yes. I when I heard I was like British Vogue doing something so different and they have over the years like they've always tried doing something different right so I thought here a young girl would pick up a magazine and look at it and be like okay I could become an actor or a singer but I could also become a scientist and that's exactly what we want. I think STEM is becoming far more of an option for younger girls now. I'm yeah. hoping so anyway. Yeah. But it still needs all the help it can get I think in getting women into science. Your list of pastimes as science outreach to kids and you already mentioned this. What does that mean? What does that involve? I'm interested in the extremes in terms of age. That means like younger kids and older people. So my my research I look at older people but I love kids. I just love kids. I love playing with them. There's something about them, the way their brain develops and the way they ask questions and the way they're curious. So, given my own experience because I feel that when I was a kid, thanks to my grandparents and my parents who gave me all these experiences and opportunities, I was able to shape up my imagination. Mm-hmm. So, I felt that I have to give back in some way. and that's the reason why i reach out to kids it's that age when you can inspire them motivate them are you teaching science to them is that what you're doing so there's an organization in india called evidya loka it's an online ngo and what they do is like they partner online volunteers with students in villages in india so i used to teach twice every week to a bunch of kids sitting in jharkhand in india which is a tiny village Jharkhand is a state and there's a there's a village in Jharkhand and yes I would wake up in the morning at 5 o'clock switch on my laptop and there in front of me were like about 20 to 25 kids both boys and girls 
sitting there, looking up, ready to listen to what I had to teach And were them. they a class or were they just individuals who got together because they were interested in the science? No, it was a class. So, so the idea was to teach them fundamental concepts, but not right from the textbooks. So you would basically explain the concepts to them. I love the idea of you sitting in Cambridge and over the internet teaching a class in a village in India. That's a great idea. Yes, and most of the children in my class were girls. For me, one of the very touching moments was when I was introducing some other friends to this so that they could volunteer as well. And the admin from India called me and and, uh, and she said, you know, there's this girl who, who basically said that oh, when I grow up, I want to become like Priyanka, ma'am. And I was like, oh, no, what have I done? Like, this is... <laughs> that's great. That's yeah. exactly what you want because that inspires them. Yeah. <laughs> Your other um, hobbies, I see, are experimental theatre and flamenco. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I love dancing. I absolutely love dancing. So uh, so when I was in Cambridge uh, and I was diagnosed with this glaucoma and there was a period when I could not see. And, you know, when, when such things happen, the first thing you do is lose your confidence. Mm-hmm. It just goes down and you don't know what's, what it's you're going to do. It's terrifying. Yeah, yeah. So what was terrifying for me was that if I can't see, what am I going to do with my life? And and there was a period like one week when uh, my... Uh, so in glaucoma, your eye pressures would go very, very high. And... Uh, because of those eye pressures, I would not be able to see. So because I was terrified, I would just go off to sleep. And because I was like, you know, at least when I'm sleeping, there's no way to be fearful. So that point, because I'd lost confidence, one of my friends, one of my best friends, she was in Switzerland at that point, she did flamenco and she said that, you know, why don't you try this? And, and I was like, OK, I'll go and try. And, and and flamenco is, I mean, it is a partner dance as well in some forms of it. But essentially, when you start off, you start off on your own. And the more I did it, the more I felt connected to myself, as they say that music and dance can have this effect on you. Mm-hmm. So I just found a way to express myself, which was through flamenco. And I just loved it and got addicted. So, yes. So what now? What research are you working in in the moment? So for me, I started off asking a question, which was, can we design small molecule drugs that can target these irregular misfolded proteins that cause Alzheimer's and Parkinson's? I would say that this was still more of a translational, you know, question where you're designing drugs for these proteins. I remember when I submitted my PhD, the first thought that came to my mind after I came out of that famous red door on Mill Lane was that now I know what I don't know. And (laughs) and I think that was the start. So I was like, I have to go back into asking a more fundamental question, which is that here I'm targeting these proteins that aggregate form clumps and are implicated in Alzheimer's. But then what really causes them to aggregate? What really happens? What's the event that takes place that pushes these proteins to form clumps? So as we know that Alzheimer's presents itself about 20 years before the symptoms and before it's diagnosed or before it's picked up in the clinic. But but we don't really know at that point that it has started. So, of course, there are genetic factors, familial factors where if, you know, it's hereditary and there's a 50% chance and one could get it. But what about people who just get it sporadically after 65 years of age? We don't understand why. So so I asked that question and I started off with uh, investigating metabolism. And metabolism essentially would give you a readout of your interaction with the environment, what's really happening around you. And if I could put it in very layman's words, it's like, probably in the long term, an effect of 
how you're living, like your lifestyle, if that can contribute to the onset and progression of a certain disease or not. Mm-hmm. So what I'm investigating right now is certain metabolites whose levels change in response to a person's interaction with the environment. So your body is made up of small molecules as well, small molecules and these big molecules, and they work together to keep it in harmony. This interaction with the environment could cause the levels of some of these molecules to just change. So I'm trying to understand if these changed levels of these molecules, can it push these proteins to aggregate or not? Because if they do, then probably we'll get some answers to some other questions there. Dr. Priyanka Joshi, thank you very much for joining us today and telling us, well, the story of your life, really. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that was Linda Ness talking to Dr. Priyanka Joshi.